Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Proofpoint and Proofpoint's Ryan Callumber will be along a little bit later on to talk about how insiders exfil data, how they typically do that. And um, yeah, typically being the key word there because it turns out that malicious insiders are very, very predictable when it comes to how they're going to try to smuggle stuff out. So do hang around for that interview. It's really interesting stuff and it is coming up later. Uh, And Adam, just before we get going, a couple of things. The first thing is I interviewed the director of the Center for Cyber Intelligence at CIA uh, last week. That's an exclusive interview and it's an absolute cracker and I'm going to publish it tomorrow. So everybody keep an eye out in your podcast feeds for that one. Uh, The second thing is last week I published an interview with Andrew Morris at Grey Noise and uh, they've built what is basically the world's absolute best dynamic internet scale honeypot. It is extremely awesome. Uh, But some people apparently heard me trash talking honeypots in that conversation and thought I was dissing Thinkst Canary. And no, Uh, Thinkst Canaries are amazing. I was dissing honeypots uh, as an internet facing tool, which was the context of the conversation, like how to capture intelligence from the internet using honeypots. Canaries aren't deployed to the internet. They are a completely different thing. These two things are not connected. Um, So just wanted to clear that up. Uh, But yes, it is time to get into the news now, Adam. And Twitter has been aflame. Mastodon has been aflame with everybody slinging a bit of mud at the old Twitters there, Guy. Uh, because they are discontinuing SMS uh, two-factor authentication. And this has displeased absolutely everyone. Yes, there's been a lot of opinions, a lot of column inches uh, spilled on the various sites uh, about this decision. And, you know, you can kind of see, you know, there's arguments to be had in all sorts of angles for this. And unfortunately, you know, that, actual reason appears to be way more mundane than concern about security of users and accounts. Yes, uh, the world's smartest man uh, has really tanked Twitter's business. This is what this is about. This is absolutely 100% a cost-cutting measure, right? So we've we've heard talk from Musk about the challenges involved in SMS 2FA at Twitter. And, you know, basically what he says is happening is some of these like fourth tier telcos, and I believe him too, right? I, I don't necessarily believe him on the numbers in this thing because he says this is this is resulting in $60 million annually in losses. Uh, but what he says is happening is there are these fourth tier telcos who basically set up fake Twitter accounts to get them to send auth messages to numbers that, you know, that telco owns so they can charge the termination fees, right? Like he, he, he spoke about this in a Twitter spaces in December, 2022, and I've clipped some audio from that. Here it is. Basically, there are telcos who are not being super honest out there in other parts of the world who were basically gaming the system and, and running like two-factor authentication SMS texts over and over again and just creating a zillion bot accounts to literally run up the tab so that Twitter would SMS text them and Twitter would just pay them millions of dollars wow. without even asking about it. Um, and, and now this created some problems because I said, well, we've got to stop that. And I said, like, you know, cut off any telco that's got fraud above 10%. Now that did cause some havoc in many parts of the world. Um, and then people were like imputing like bad motives to it. But it was literally, I just said to the team, hey, cut off any telco who's where the fraud's above 10%. Um, that turned out to be a lot, 390 telcos. <laughs> I'm like, damn, that's hot. Oh, my gosh. Outside of North America, you know. So I'm like, okay. I didn't know there were that many telcos in existence. But it turns out there's some, you know, you, you, you get to like the fourth tier telco in Bielorussia, Russia, and you're like, you got some sketchy things going on. 
And now we know why a bunch of telcos in Ukraine uh, lost the ability to receive SMS <laughs> messages from Twitter. And that might be the, you know, ascribing motives part of that conversation. Yes. Um, but look, you know, I posted a, a I, I did a post on Mastodon where I said, look, you know, goodbye SMS 2FA. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's the weakest form of MFA. Twitter already supports uh, hardware key-based MFA, like U2F style. It also supports code generators and whatnot. But, you know, I got a lot of replies, uh, uh, you know, disagreeing with me, saying that, well, SMS is very accessible to people who don't have smartphones and on and on and on. So, you know, I, I actually did a bit of research on this and it turns out only 2.5% of Twitter users use multi-factor authentication. It is true that three quarters of them use SMS as their as their uh, 2FA method. But I'm curious to know what the self-selection criteria among that group is, because this is something that you actually have to proactively turn on. So it's my feeling that a lot of these people will probably just move over to, to a code generator based auth. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, that does seem seem pretty likely. I mean, people's familiarity with multi-factor auth has definitely you know, increased over the last few years. It's a much less confronting thing to set up than perhaps it was 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, I do think that, you know, switching over, you know, taking out SMS auth, like the, the accessibility aspects of it and the, the you know, kind of it being a lowest common denominator that if you're using Twitter, you probably can receive an SMS. Like, I, I do see that and... You know, I could imagine replacing that with email, a code, right? I mean, that's, you know, no better or worse. (laughs) Just bear with me here for a second, right? Because you did have that argument. People say, well, what about people who can't afford fancy smartphones? Okay, fair enough. But 80 to 85% of all content posted to Twitter is posted from a mobile device. And that includes content for people who also have the mobile app installed, right? Like, like Twitter is very much a social media platform for people who have smartphones, right? Now, I'm sure there are some people who are desktop users only, uh, but by and large, uh, Twitter is a platform for people who use it on a smartphone. Also, accessibility to a smartphone is actually somewhat easier most of the time uh, than accessibility to a desktop computer, right? So the the idea that, you know, economically this is a problem, I you know, I, I just don't see it. But the funny thing is here, you're mentioning, well, maybe they could do email-based auth. If only, Adam, they had some sort of mobile application with a decent install base <laughs> that they could use as part of this authentication, right? Like, so of course mm. Twitter has done the dumb thing here. You know, they're pushing a notification that tells users we're turning it off, but you can go into settings. And and they're making users actually go in and turn it off themselves. So they're actually having to go into that part of the application and, you know, change the setting, which means they've, you know, they've got a good chance that they're going to get a bunch of people churning over to, to you know, app generate, uh, code generators and whatnot at the same time. But, you know, you'd think the smart way to do this would be to bake a little bit of auth into, a bit of an auth function into the actual app, right? Like instead of just relying on people installing another app to authenticate to the app that's already on the device. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're looking for least change. And if it's a problem that was cost-driven in the first place, as opposed to improving security-driven... Bingo. Then, then they're not going to yeah. make those changes. Exactly, they're not right? going to make those changes, yeah. yes. So, so, so this just goes back to reinforcing the whole thing, that Twitter, as a company, is in serious, serious trouble. Now, Musk is not, because he has got gajillions of dollars, he will be absolutely fine. But if you just look at Twitter in isolation, between the interest payments they've got uh, on the debt that was used to finance this thing, spiking interest rates and collapsing revenue, <laughs> they're, in a lot of, they're in a world of hurt, right? So that, that, yeah. that's what this is about. 
Yeah, I mean, it's honestly amazing that Twitter has stayed up this whole time. I mean, the fact that it's functional, that there's anything to Auth2 is still amazing. Uh, you know, whether it's one, one of pay, I mean, uh, yeah, it's surprising. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, we're going to see a bunch of changes in the platform as they change their model. And, you know, there's been some criticism of offering SMS two-factor in the future for paid customers. So if you're a Twitter Blues subscriber or whatever, then you have SMS as an option, which if you view it through the financial lens, it makes sense. Like then they're paying for the fraud from, you know, well, exactly. They're not gonna, They're not going to pay you eight bucks a month. Uh, to run SMS fraud worth no, exactly, you know, $2 right? so, a month. Yeah so. yeah, so all the people who want to keep using it, you know, it's still available uh, and they're not going to wear the cost anymore. And it makes, it makes total sense through that lens and all of the other views that we've seen of it tend to fall apart because that's not what it's actually about. Yeah, I mean, it's just been an interesting reaction. I understand the reflex to want to kick Musk in the teeth because he is a complete dickhead, right? So I, I, I get that. But I, I kind of think like, you know, this is just a matter of facing reality, right? Which is they, they, this is just something they can't afford to do. They got to churn away from it. And it's probably not the end of the world. I mean, I, I would think, you know, the anger would be justified if they were making multi-factor authentication a feature purely just for Twitter blue, but they're not. They're removing the weakest form of MFA. Uh, and of course, you're not going to do anything to alienate your paid subscribers. Um, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, people are going to feel, a, a, you know, a sense of, of pride every time they get their, their code SMS to them because premium, they are... Premium SMS messages. Exactly, yes. <laughs> right? But, um, you know, I, I don't think this is this is taking, uh, you know, security away from users necessarily. I mean, you know, it will result, it will result in a bunch of accounts not having MFA that did have it previously, but... I don't know. I just, I just, you know, it is in the category of it, it is what it is. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, it's a great reminder as well that, you know, abusing cloud services or, you know, software as a service platforms or whatever for economic arbitrage is still a thing that people do. Mm. Um, you know, like when, when people had, you know, uh, 1900, 0900, whatever you call, you know, premium pay numbers are, you know, this kind of termination fraud. Uh, has been going on, you know, before the internet. Man, it's still uh, and, it's still going on. Probably still it's is, still right? Going on. There are telcos in the Pacific, like in Tonga and places like that, right? Where you know, to ring those numbers, they charge absolutely epic termination fees. So there's things like, I, I can't remember precisely if it was Tonga that was the the country that I'm thinking of, but uh, I know some countries in the Pacific had this issue. So there, there's now all of these missed call scams, right? So you get a missed call from a number in you know wherever, you dial it back, and they're hitting you eight bucks a minute. Yeah, and but there was even malware that used to do this. Like you'd infect a phone and then they would dial premium rate numbers. We even had it on the desktop where in like the early Windows era, you'd get viruses that would look for your modem and then yeah, at yeah, night yeah, yeah, would yeah. dial premium rate numbers. So, well, and you'd have like an ActiveX thing that would drop your modem like from wherever, whatever ISP it was connected to and then it would redial in to some premium number. You'd still have your internet access, but it would be billing you at some outrageous rate. Yeah, so smooth. So, yeah, yeah, so this is the thing. And I think I think there was a bit of confusion where people thought Twitter was communicating that this was about user security and it wasn't. It was about minimizing fraud to it, not to its customers. Yeah, and that makes makes total sense. And you know, I'm in a way I'm kind of glad that someone's still doing that kind of scam, right? That's uh it's old school. <laughs> it takes, you know? takes you back because you worked in a like a ISP back in the yes. day, right? So you yeah, would have yeah, seen yeah. some of this stuff. Yeah, we saw all sorts of uh, all sorts of sneaky things, and even between the telcos, like you know, we would have telcos that would offer us discounted like dial-in lines because they were going to give us a cut of the interconnect revenue from the telco that was providing the residential service. So we would buy them from the non-residential telco and then get a cut of the revenue, which yeah. there was a whole ISP here in New Zealand that was funded that way. It was entirely free ISP funded entirely through interconnect revenue. 
which didn't last particularly long because the, the main telco went and changed the interconnect rates to put them out of business. So kind of what you'd expect. I think as a result of this, a bunch of high value accounts, you know, large follower accounts and whatever, like the people running them should know that they need 2FA. I think most of them probably will realize that. And we're going to see them churn over uh, onto, onto different methods. But when you think about it, man, like, you know, the amount of drama like sim swapping has caused major Twitter accounts over the last like five, 10 years is just extraordinary. So, I mean, there's a part of me that's really happy seeing SMS 2FA go away as an auth method here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. Like, We have seen high-profile sim swapping and people have lost very, very real money. Uh, and in that respect, you know, it probably will be an improvement. And, you know, SMS Unless no one like, migrates and then all of those things get brute forced yeah, well, because they're not doing rate limiting and yeah. we see just this cascading river of um, uh, <laughs> compromised accounts pushing crypto fraud. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as everyone has pointed out at some point in one of these threads, you know, any 2FA is better than none, but... In this particular case, you know, sim swapping or whatever was always a, a you know pretty targeted kind of thing, and moving people away from it in that set of users is a good idea. And then, honestly, as you say, like code generator apps, to- totally reasonable alternative, and you know they're not that they're probably not, probably easier to use than SMS to FA once people have tried it. Yeah, you know, I don't know that anything of value was lost here. There's some related news out of Meta actually. So uh, they're launching a service for Facebook and Instagram accounts. I actually think this is good, right? So people have been complaining about this. Oh, they should do this for free. They can't afford to, okay? The the, the economics of doing this don't stack up without collecting a fee from the user. So what they're doing is they're charging uh, 12 bucks a month and 15 bucks a month on iOS. I'm not quite sure how that works given the account is the account is the account. Uh, But they're charging for like a verified, uh, meta verified account. Now, okay, you get your blue tick, right? But they, they're verifying against a government ID. So whatever, that's nice. I'm sure people are still going to do fake government IDs and get verified somehow. Although, you know, maybe they've done the right plumbing and they can actually do the ID checks with government services and whatever. Whatever. That's not the interesting part of this. The interesting part of this is that if you're a paid subscriber, you get access to support. Now, now Instagram account theft is a real problem. Uh, I've included a story... Uh, in this week's show notes about a wedding photographer from West Australia who just had their account nuked. They, I don't think they know why. It's cost them $50,000 in missing bookings uh, already. Like, you know, their, their Instagram account was their business. And I know a lot of creatives and whatnot where, you know, that is their online presence. So having the option... And they can't reach support. No one will land, no one will talk to them. Like the scale of this problem is just such that you you can't do anything about it. I've I've you know this is something that I've spoken about on the show a bunch of times. It's even something where I said like maybe they could spin up paid support where if this happens to you you could pay them to try to sort it out. But then you're kind of turning that into a profit center in your company and do you know then you're kind of incentivizing account hijacking so you can collect fees uh, to sort out the problem. So. This seems like a sensible thing. If, if your Instagram account or your Facebook page is something that's important to your business, now you can pay, you know, 15 bucks a month and have some sort of confidence uh, that, um, you know, you'll get some protection against people impersonating you. Uh, you'll get access to support if something goes wrong. I, I think this is a good thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, certainly through that lens, I, I agree with you. I mean, the... You know, Facebook's previous attempts at name verification and real-world identity verification were kind of, you know, non-starters because of a whole bunch of the other, you know, identity politics and things that kind of go along with the dual purpose of Facebook as a, 
you know, personal social network and as a business platform for people like this uh, wedding photographer and anyone else who's built their business on Facebook's platform, it makes sense. You know, if you're, if this is your livelihood, 15 bucks a month is not that bad and it'll improve the service and it gives, you know, the people who need these, you know, who need real support as opposed to being, being the product, getting it for free and, you know, having all of the other bad things happen to you on the platform. Like this, this kind of makes sense. Uh, And, you know, the, the other aspects of it, like maybe you get better promotion in people's feeds or whatever else. Like, I mean, that's, you know, I guess, I guess fine. That's what you can have. But yeah, as a, you know, if you make a business platform, you kind of owe it to your users to provide some mechanism to support that. Now, I believe this is just for individuals' accounts at the moment. They haven't rolled it out for business accounts, but, you know, that's surely coming. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, I, I just think this is something that need, needs to happen. And it's interesting seeing moves from Twitter and Meta both looking at this issue of account integrity. I think a lot of the stuff too in the Twitter case, just going back to that for a moment, whatever authentication method you're talking about, like account recovery is really uh, where a lot of this stuff winds up because if you lose your YubiKey, if you lose your code generator somehow, if you lose access to your email address, like that's when you start getting into account recovery flows and that's where it gets super complicated because there's risks uh, that attackers can use the recovery flows to actually do the account hijacking in the first place. And, you know, that's why you need the support. That's why you actually need someone uh, at, at these companies who can sit down and actually take a look at it and figure out what's happened and that requires human intervention because these recovery flows are terrible, particularly in the case of Instagram, like absolutely shockingly bad. Yeah, I mean, trying to do that in an automated manner, handling all of those chaotic edge cases has always been difficult. I mean, anyone who's used password reset to break into somebody else's account or in a corporate context, you know, that is a process that we do abuse as attackers. And having a human in the loop is kind of important, both from a, you know, the complexity of it and also for spotting novel and weird stuff happening. And, you know, we've seen telcos, I mean, sim swapping is a great example, right? I mean, this is, um, you know, often a pretty manual process unless you've got access to the back-end telco systems like a bunch of the sim swappers did. Um, but, you know, it's expensive. Fundamentally, it's expensive. And anytime you roll out to a FA, you look at the support costs that you're going to get from having to do that and bundle that into the cost-benefit. Like, is an incident response... You know, paying someone to roll instant response in your environment, what does that cost versus what does it cost to have 15 people whose job it is to handle account resets, you know, sitting in a service desk somewhere? Like, you're always balancing this. And, you know, I am I imagine anyone who's been on the wrong side of one of these reset flows would happily pay a fee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering if, if, if what we're seeing now could be the beginning of, <clears throat> you know, a concept that's been around for a long time. Uh, which is the concept of an ID provider, a proper online ID provider that, uh, you know, can give you decent access into things. And, you know, we live in an OAuth age. I mean, what if there were some trusted company that took very great care uh, with with managing your online identity and being your authentication provider? What if it was your bank uh, that could operate that service for you? And, um, you know, all, all services would authenticate to that. I mean, you'd really have to trust your bank but, you know, I, I think we're just gradually edging towards this idea that's been around for 20 years. And this sort of thing um, supports that idea. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a reasonable argument to make that this should be a government function. Like in Estonia, national God, smart no. have you seen Have you seen Australian government systems? <laughs> bad, well, it's, man. It's, it's funny because I guess we're, we're foreshadowing a conversation later on. But we'll come back to this point uh, yes. in a little bit. 
when we talk about the New Zealand case. <laughs> oh man, yeah, actually, I'd forgotten about that. That's uh, <laughs> I'm rubbing I'm rubbing my temples right now. But anyway, uh, let's move on. Let's move on from that. Let's but yeah, look on. at look look. The TLDR is that um, yes, Elon Musk is a dickhead, but you know, in this case, he's probably doing what I'd do. Uh, at, you know, <laughs> like probably what you'd do as well, right, Adam? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it's just, I love that when that, that whole drama from last year, uh, when he pulled the pin on a bunch of, tel- you know, no one knew what was happening. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, they've kicked Ukrainians off, uh, you know, off Twitter and whatever. But, uh, you know, a lot of it was around this SMS stuff. So there you go. Um, it's funny how this world works. It is. It is very say funny. say that every week on the show these days. Now, we briefly mentioned a, uh, a couple of ransomware attacks uh, affecting, you know, semiconductor companies in the United Kingdom. We've got some flow-on effects from one of them. A company called Applied Materials, uh, which provides technology to the semiconductor industry. Uh, one of its upstream suppliers has been hammered uh, by a ransomware attack. Uh, that upstream supplier is MKS Instruments, an engineering firm. Applied Materials is predicting it will incur a loss of $250 million in the next quarter. As a result of this attack, this is you know I'm 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 honestly quite surprised that this story hasn't jumped outside of the infosec press because that's a big number. Yeah, that that certainly is a big number, and I you know when I read that I'm like okay that sounds bad, but also in the context of the trade war relating to semiconductor manufacturing, also kind of interesting. Oh, like those semiconductor supply chains. You know, that's a thing that we just saying we the West, you know, have now restricted access to from China. You know, wouldn't it be terrible if, uh, you know, a bunch of West and semiconductor manufacturers had a bad time? Are you calling shenanigans? (laughs) I'm just saying I read it and I'm like, no one's taken responsibility for this ransomware yet. We don't see it on, you know, Klopp or whoever else's league sites. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm just thinking thinking out loud. There's no No, basis for this. I got no, no data, but. That that would be an extremely aggressive, um, extremely aggressive action. Um, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure our actions have been perceived as extremely aggressive already by the Chinese. So yeah, sure. This is in a slightly different category, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean that that had not occurred to me. I mean, I, I was thinking of this as bog stock ransomware. But you're right. I mean, you know, would it be in China's interests for something like this to happen uh, when there, you know, the Chips Act has passed? For those not familiar, it's called the Chips Act, uh, which has restricted uh, the export of advanced manufacturing technology in the semiconductor space to china maybe maybe we're gonna maybe we'll be back here in a couple of weeks saying oh my god you were right madam i mean how much value did we wipe off huawei or zte or other chinese equipment manufacturers compared to 250 mil probably a great deal more yeah yeah yeah. that's interesting food for thought uh the other the other notable ransomware incident it's an ongoing one uh but it appears to be uh, quite bad and, yeah, not, not really improving. Uh, the city of Oakland in California has declared uh, a state of emergency over a ransomware attack. Yes, they've uh, got problems with a number of the computer systems involved. They've also had to shut down a bunch of their networks uh, to, you know, contain and, and deal with the fallout of that. Uh, and that's included things like phone systems. Uh, so there's just a bunch of problems all around government services in Oakland. Um, and given Oakland's proximity to a great many security vendors, you know, maybe 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 there's something they could do to help out. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of of people pitching in, pitching in there. But well, you'd hope so. <laughs> you'd hope so, right? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, and a broadcaster in Ireland, uh, Virgin Media Television, has uh, experienced a disruption 
uh, to its programming over some sort of cyber attack, which they have specifically said wasn't ransomware. So this one's a bit of a mystery. Yeah, they said uh, they had identified unauthorized attempts to access their systems, but not ransomware, which... I mean, I'm, I'm curious now. Now I want to see what, what was going on. Maybe it was pre-ransomware. They got it, you know, left of left of bang or whatever they call it. Uh, so that's possible. But yeah, I, I'm... God, yeah, our terminology I'm, is ridiculous, isn't it? it left is, of yeah. bang. God. I mean, really, yeah. Get your hand off it. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, but, oh, no, know, they call it left of boom, don't they? Left of boom, boom is somehow uh, boom is somehow less embarrassing than bang. <laughs> I don't know. Now let's have a little bit of a chat about uh, Team Jorge, uh, Adam, because this group, uh, an Israeli-based company, I believe it refers to itself as Team Jorge. It's it's got I can't actually remember the name of the of the actual company, but you know they're like a they're like a shady um, uh, firm that does stuff like uh, you know influence operations for its clients, right? So. Cambridge Analytica, but with hack and leak, is kind of kind of the 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 picture here. It's got a lot of press. This stuff. I think the most interesting thing about it is the fact that they claim to be able to, uh, you know, access messaging platforms and you know dump inboxes and stuff like that. Now that is obviously very concerning because it is illegal. It is uh, it is a criminal act uh, to go and hack people's accounts and steal material, um, let alone integrating it into, you know, online uh, political dirty tricks campaigns. But I think also that we've all been a little bit too scared of the Cambridge Analytica style companies in the world. I think for the most part, these companies are grifters. You know, they promise results that they can't deliver uh, they say they have digital magic and algorithms and, and whatnot, and they shake, they shake millions of dollars out of their customers. And, you know, hey, great work if you can get it. And I think the only thing that's interesting about this group is that, uh, is that they do the, the hacking stuff as well. What, did, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on. Um, it does feel a lot like online marketing. And then if you add a little bit of crime in, maybe you can achieve results that look good. But, you know, some of the examples that uh, this particular piece from The Guardian talks through is, you know, attempts to influence um, elections in uh, Nigeria. And, you know, you kind of look at the results that they got for how much effort they went to, like including in this case, uh, it looked like maybe physically intrusion, physical intrusion into the opposition campaign's offices or they recruited an insider or whatever and got access to emails and things. You know, there really wasn't much in there and they didn't make a whole bunch of headway with it. And, I, and you know, as <laughs> But a, I'm sure they build, you know, like well, that. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, the, um, I mean, some of the numbers that people were getting paid was like, you know, half a million dollars for the Israeli Israeli firm from their um, part of the operation, and I don't know how much Cambridge Analytica got, but you know, for that kind of money and the willingness to break the law, I feel like you should get better results. Yes, uh, and you know that that idea that you know firms like Cambridge Analytica are just going to wave algorithmic spooky fingers at something and come up with something. You know, that's all magical and they can, you know. But Cambridge Analytica, and I should have made it clear in my intro too that these people have actually worked with Cambridge Analytica on this stuff. But, you know, Cambridge Analytica's whole idea that they had this like one-time scrape and ran some psychometric baselining against it to try to infer from it, you know, various political preferences and stuff. That's not very useful when people's opinions change. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> this idea that this model was going to deliver anything relevant. Um, I don't know, man. I, I just think... I just think they're grifters. I think they're out to shake as much money out of people's pockets as humanly possible. 
Yes, and I guess if they shook some money out of the Trump campaign, maybe you know it washes out as a net positive. Who knows? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Now look, oh, dear. <laughs> now look, staying with grifters, uh, Fox News. Uh, so there's been you know Dominion Dominion voting machines, right? Like uh, the, the the Dominion company is suing Fox News because Fox News platformed a bunch of conspiracy theorists who said that you know. Dominion was involved in involved in cybering the election somehow. I can't. I lose track because the conspiracy theories are so varied and overlap so much. I can't remember if it was supposed to be Venezuela or China or the Democrats or whoever. But the you know the accusation in these uh, conspiracy theories was that um, Dominion uh, voting systems were involved in stealing the election away from um, uh, from Donald Trump. Now, what's interesting here is thanks to to the discovery process in this defamation trial. Uh, we got a whole bunch of leaked messages from Fox personalities and stuff that show that they knew absolutely 100% without a shadow of a doubt that these fraud claims were utter bullshit and they just kept going with them on air. So, you know, your Tucker Carlson's and your, I can't remember the name of the, uh, Sean Hannity, the other angry one. Um, you know, all these people like texting amongst themselves going, talking about how crazy the conspiracy theorists were while simultaneously pushing this theory. So it's my, look, it's my feeling that, you know, this this suit probably isn't going to go Fox's way, right? It, it certainly does not seem that way. When you've even got Rupert Murdoch, you know, in an email saying that Rudy Giuliani was really crazy stuff and damaging, and then, you know, they need it for ratings, so they're going to run it anyway kind of thing. Like, that's, it's just not going to, it's not going to go well, and, and neither should it. Um, you know, there was a, a quote from one, like, producer or something from Fox saying that uh, falling ratings will make good news, you know, good reporters do bad things, uh, and that, that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, the general, uh, you know, the suggestion here is that they were worried about, uh, you know, some of these even nuttier uh, cable networks like Newsmax kind of chipping away into their audience, so they had to, like, out-crazy Newsmax <laughs> to try to maintain ratings. And, you know, I just think this is interesting where we've seen, you know, claims about, uh, you know, hacking or cyber something, um, you know, now result in a $1.6 billion lawsuit. Yeah, and, and good luck to them. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they get some of those billions. Now let's talk about Google's report into all things Russia-Ukraine. This is a joint sort of tag and Google Mandiant report. And it's interesting. It's got some good stuff in it. It's a lot of what you'd expect. You know, Russia has certainly... I mean, it's weird because it fits the pattern of what we're seeing on the battlefield in Ukraine as well through these current offensives uh, that have started over the last few weeks, which is Russia just amplifying its activity. You know, they're not trying to achieve a breakthrough anywhere uh, in Ukraine. They're just throwing more men and material at, at Ukrainian positions, right? And, and really, when you flip through this report, what we're seeing is that that's been their approach in cyber as well, which is just more of the same stuff, more collection, more disruptive attacks, uh, more influence operations, just more of the same, more of the same. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of narrative that Russia felt like they had a plan for the first week in Ukraine, then after that, you know, they're just kind of winging it. You know, that you looked at the very early cyber attacks there, the, you know, Viasat disruption, for example, you know, pretty, pretty sensible, pretty, you know, had some good impact. Uh, and then now, you know, it, all we're seeing is, you know, phishing and wipers and, you know, attacks on neighbouring countries and other places that they'd like to maintain influence. Um, there's that interesting conversation coming up about uh, Sweden and the... Um, Oh, Operation uh, Anonymous Anonymous Sudan. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get yeah, to that. that. The, yeah. yeah, we'll get to that one in a second. And, you know, 
Russia is certainly keeping busy, but in terms of concrete effects, it doesn't feel super effective. And, you know, when Google lays out, you know, a whole bunch of the things that have happened and the bunch of the attacks that we've seen, like that overall picture of it not having been, you know, from a geopolitical and a military perspective, super effective, you know, seems to be what the main takeaway is for me. Yeah, I mean, I've got one massive issue with this report where they've let some marketing bullshit creep into this and it pisses me off. Okay, so we got we got this. Uh, where is it? Page seventeen, uh, talking about stuff that like the Sandworm Group have done. Uh, I'm going to read from it here. Frozen Barrents, and that's what they call sand, Sandworm. Frozen Barrents campaigns seem designed to advance Russian strategic objectives and respond to changes in Russian intelligence requirements throughout the conflict. Okay, so far so normal. I'll continue. Frozen Barents targeted a Turkish drone manufacturer whose systems were used by Ukraine in the early weeks of the war. Obviously, they're referencing the company that makes the, the Bayraktar TB2 drones. But it doesn't say if that targeting was successful. I mean, it would be news if they didn't target them. Yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> so they say they were targeted, but they don't say it was successful. Now, let me continue. Russia subsequently disabled the drones. Wow, Adam. Did you know that Russia cybered uh, uh, Ukraine's Bayraktar TB2s? Did you know that? Uh, I, I don't recall us discussing it on the news, and surely we would have. Yeah, and there's a hyperlink in there on, under the word disabled. You click on that, it takes you to a news story, basically wondering where the Bayraktar TB2s have gone from the battlefield. Now, what we got here is a block of text that heavily implies that the Sandworm crew successfully penetrated the makers of this, these drones and somehow disabled them using cyber means. And there is absolutely nothing in this report that substantiates that. It is extremely misleading. You know, the, the most likely reason that uh, uh, Ukraine stopped having success with its Bayraktar TB2s is because the Russians adjusted their S-300 ground-based air defense technology to factor in for those drones, right? They weren't initially looking for such slow-moving small targets, very easy to adjust them uh, to look for those things. And they, uh, you know, had eventually set up some decent ground-based air defense. So, you know, I, I, could this have happened? Maybe, but you wouldn't know it from, from, uh, from reading this report. And it's just another example. I mean, Microsoft is notorious at this. And now we're seeing it from Google too, where they're trying to sex up. Uh, they're trying to sex up their reports. It's, it's, it's shocking. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. Like, uh, seeing military drones compromised by cyber would be absolutely big news. I mean, clearly it's possible, but it actually happening, that would be the most effective bit of you know military-focused cyber that they had done in this conflict, and it would be super interesting, and we'd be talking about it. Um, yeah. And sucks that we're talking about it in this context. Cause yeah, I mean, I'll just read that section hacking. again. Frozen Barons targeted a Turkish drone manufacturer whose systems were used by Ukraine in the early weeks of the war. Full stop. Russia subsequently disabled the drones, full stop. Yeah, you know, I mean, that implies... The cyber. It does, but it's... It, anyway, it just... It really annoys me, right? Because it, it, it's just like everyone's chasing headlines with this stuff. And there's so much good work in this report. And then you put something like that in it. Drives me nuts. Absolutely yeah, nuts. Yeah, sucks. Anyway, now, Adam, you just mentioned uh, this story uh, that we were going to talk about. We've actually got some new information on this one. Uh, Anonymous Sudan has claimed responsibility for an attack against Scandinavian airlines. Now, of course, uh, there was some Koran burning uh, in Sweden uh, a short time ago, which has resulted in uh, some, some protests. Uh, turns out the people who organised the burning of this Koran in Sweden uh, have been linked to Russian state media, 
<laughs> and furthermore, uh, and this report just crossed my desk. It was from Catalan. Uh, there's a there's a company called TrueSec, uh, which is claiming that Anonymous Sudan, which has now attacked you know Scandinavian head, uh, airlines, uh, Anonymous Sudan is actually a Russian op, right? <laughs> so this whole thing looks like a bit of an information operation, and it is not in fact annoyed uh, uh, anons in Sudan who are now attacking <laughs> Scandinavian airlines over Quran burning that was in fact organized, maybe organized by the Russian government. Yes, oh, it's a it's a funny world, isn't it? Uh, it does make it does make more sense, perhaps, uh, that it's a Russian info op. But uh, I mean, you know, someone's got to, someone's got to fill in what they did on their timesheet this week in in you know SVR or wherever they wherever they are. And yeah, good job, I guess. Got a, well, got I mean, the thinking is that this whole controversy has been whipped up uh, to delay uh, Sweden's ascension to becoming a you know a fully fledged NATO uh, country. So yeah, I mean, that by by annoying you know doing this to agitate people in turkey yes. basically yeah but we've seen lots of you know lots of state actors attempt to impersonate hacker crews of, of varying sorts but uh yeah anonymous sudan you know organizing themselves out of russian hacker telegram yeah kind of everything fits into place it all it does, falls, right? falls like, together as soon as someone <laughs> says that's the russian government you're just like oh yeah that makes sense yeah. it makes more yeah. sense than anonymous sudan organizing this over russia hacker <laughs> telegram right so. <laughs> now let's talk about azure b2c uh, Adam, now this is a story that you referred to earlier. Uh, d- look, you're just going to have to explain this one while I rub my temples. Go yes, on. all right. All right, so uh, Microsoft Azure has a service called Active Directory B2C, which is completely unrelated to regular Active Directory, uh, much like Azure Active Directory, which is also not Active Directory. Anyway, B2C <laughs> is for uh, business-to-consumer auth, uh, and the intent of this is to provide an authentication platform, cloud-based auth platform, for things like you know, modern single page web apps or mobile applications to do large scale authentication. So the equivalent in AWS, in Amazon AWS would be like Cognito, their auth platform. Uh, so if you need to deploy an app that auths thousands of people, uh, then this is, a, or millions of people or whatever else, this is a mechanism that you can use uh, to build things like that that are scalable and so on and so forth. Um, the example I alluded to earlier was that this platform is actually the, is replacing the New Zealand government-operated identity service. Uh, we're building a new one on top of Azure using this particular platform. Anyway, uh, Praetorian, uh, the security consultancy, uh, published a blog post talking about a bug that they had identified uh, in Azure B2C that leads to straight up account compromise in Azure. So that's bad, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the guts of this is that you, you authenticate to this thing, it issues you a token that you can then kind of renew over time. There's some cryptographic magic sprinkled in there to make it all okay. Uh, so Praetorian describes a, quote, cryptographic flaw uh, in this mechanism uh, in which the shared secret used to manage this refresh token is... The, the the public key of an RSA key pair. So they make you generate an asymmetric key pair and then use the public part of that asymmetric key pair as a symmetric key, thus entirely defeating the point of using public key cryptography, uh, entirely <laughs> defeating the point of having a secret. Uh, and the net result of this is that you can kind of determine this RSA key that's used, figure out the public key, uh, which is public by, by its very name, um, uh, and then just make your own auth tokens for Azure. I mean, it's been a little while since we've busted out the sad trombone. I mean, it's right there in the name. Public portion of the key is the yep. public part, not the secret part. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I pasted this in, in work chat, and we all had a jolly laugh. Uh, and you know, people marvelled at the, the the use of the public key in the private context. And I said, say, well, you know, this is from the company that puts the sixty four bit windows in System thirty two, and the thirty two bit windows in SysWow sixty four. So. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Why, yeah. why, why stick with convention? We could just do as we please. And uh, I think and you, also, like you also entertained us with uh, you know, trying to imagine the scenario where the poor MS Tech person has to go to the developers who <laughs> actually wrote this code and talk to them about it. Yeah. Actually, and you know what's even funnier? Well, maybe it's not funny. One of the other funny aspects of this is this framework, this uh, BTC framework, is used for authenticating the app that you use to report security bugs to Microsoft security response center like the web page the like single page web page the msa msrc used to accept bug reports itself is authed with this mm. which i mean you know on the on the plus side you know props for dog fooding your own technology stack so that's nice um yeah awkward uh, anyway praetorian had uh, disclosed this to microsoft it's all very funny the disclosure timeline is like, it's so bad, there's like a diagram that starts like middle of last year, explaining all of the plant times they had to re-explain this back to Microsoft and so on and so forth. But it's just very, very funny. It is. It is somewhat funny. I mean, for people like you and me, anyway. Well, yeah. some of the, hopefully some of the listeners, but um, you know, don't, don't bust it out your next you know, family gathering and expect everybody to laugh their asses yeah, off. Raucous but, uh, laughter. Raucous yes. laughter ensues. Um, <laughs> Now, look, this next one's funny because recently I think we were speaking about some mm. bug in cPanel and you said, and I can't even remember if this survived the edit because, you know, I usually cut a fair bit out of our conversations before the show can go out because no one wants to listen to an hour and a half podcast, right? Um, but I think I said, you know, you were like, but who uses cPanel anymore? And I said, trust me, there's plenty of cPanel out there. <laughs> uh, we got this story here from uh, Bleeping Computer there, Adam. Yes, uh, so GoDaddy, the uh, hosting provider, domain registrar, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has said in an SEC filing that uh, they, they are compromised, that they have uh, some attackers in their environment. Uh, and it turns out it's the same attackers that have been there since 2020 and that they have previously disclosed a number of times. Uh, and yeah, it's the same same people just kind of helping themselves to the inside of, uh, of GoDaddy and doing things like you know, turning the individual WordPress servers running on cPanel boxes uh, into, you know, phishing landing points or, you know, places to serve up malware or whatever else. Um, but the important thing is they do take uh, security and privacy very seriously. Of so course they do. That's nice. But, I mean, wouldn't that be great, having three-year access to basically, you know, a whole chunk of GoDaddy when you need a, when you need a, need to have a phishing landing page? I mean, terrific. You know, yeah, they're trusted anytime. IPs and, like, you know, off you go. Yeah. Yeah, anytime you need a you know, fresh domain or you want to find something that you can take over and use or, or whatever else, yes. So uh, they did say that it is a sophisticated and organized group targeting hosting services like GoDaddy to run phishing campaigns and malware distribution. So, yes, nice. good job. <laughs> now, good I, job first, uh, <laughs> I first read about this one uh, thanks to Catalan, actually, in the Risky Business News newsletter. John Greig has a write-up up here for the record. There's some sort of cyber espionage uh, campaign targeting telcos in the Middle East. But what's really interesting is the C2 um, of this malware, which is actually using like 0365 and whatnot for XFIL and C2. And I just think that's really rad. Um, I've always been interested in the use of legitimate services um, for C2 because it just, you know, makes you invisible on the wire, basically. And it looks like someone's done a really nice job of it here. 
Yeah, this feels like a pretty professional kind of job, and obviously the sorts of people who want to target telcos in the Middle East may well be relatively professional. Um, they're using things like uh, Google Firebase as well, so a bunch of you know like cloud native uh, sorts of things. Um, so yeah, good work whoever was doing this, and, and yeah, it's just a great way to get past network controls and behavioral based controls if you can piggyback on things that are expected to be making traffic on the wire. Yeah, and that's a uh, Sentinel One, a bit of research from Sentinel One. So I've linked through to that in this week's show notes. Uh, we spoke about the Go Anywhere MFT bug. Uh, this is a file transfer appliance similar to Excelion, and we predicted that you know there would be data stolen as a result of the bugs in this thing. And uh, we've got a story here from Dan Gooden that says, uh, health information on 1 million people has been stolen from some healthcare provider, I think in the United States. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that's, that's not great. No, that's not great. And it looks like uh, it's the Klopp crew who also did a bunch of the data theft and ransom from Excellions as well. So that kind of makes sense. And also we, we saw another file transfer, like enterprise file transfer system. I think an IBM one also had a bug disclosed about the same time. So I imagine they're on that as well, because why wouldn't you? Yeah, uh, we got an update too, also from Dan, about uh, the latest trends in submitting malicious packages to PyPy. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, people doing the same sort of thing as usual, you know, squatting on package names uh, and stealing or modifying cryptocurrency addresses when they go past uh, the clipboard. Uh, but the level of obfuscation being used is improving somewhat, but otherwise pretty much situation normal in everyone's software repositories. Yeah. Uh, some interesting stuff in Belgium happening where they've kind of introduced a national uh, vulnerability coordination framework. Uh, basically, you go to the Center for Cybersecurity Belgium and report a bug to them, as well as who you're, you know, the company that is affected by the bug. Um, and you have to get a green light from them before you disclose this bug to the public. But the upside for the researcher is you get like safe harbor, right? So this is an interesting idea. What I find interesting about this though, is that everybody is applauding this, where in China they introduced similar laws and everyone freaked out and said that they are... <laughs> You know, doing this for spying purposes, right? Did you? Did you? Did that thought also occur to you? It is. It is pretty funny. Like the level of uh, you know vulnerabilities, equities management um, that the Belgians uh, are capable of doing clearly must be superior to whatever China does. They're much more you know egalitarian <laughs> or something. But yeah, it is funny that juxtaposition. And you know, I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, plenty of yeah. countries would benefit from this style of thing. And there's sort of you know various you know around Europe a various sort of collection of you know like the local prosecutors won't go after you if you act responsibly or whatever else. So Having a set of, you know, kind of well-understood rules definitely makes sense. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll be watching to see how well this goes for them. And I hope they have plenty of people to coordinate, you know, investigating all of the, the reports that they get. But yeah, that juxtaposition with when China does it, uh, you know, we're all, <laughs> all up in arms or something is, is, is pretty funny. Uh, now, a, uh, a follower of mine on Mastodon, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Zaf? I guess, uh, sent me a link to the most hilarious uh, Reddit thread, which is starts off with this guy basically saying, hey, I can't log into my HSBC account. It's really weird. It's showing, a, you know, apparently I have a balance of minus 500,000 pounds. I've been locked out of all my bank accounts. It's so weird. And then through the thread, you discover that what they were actually, like what their business was is like a Monero processing SaaS platform <laughs> to at which point people are like, so hang on, you were money laundering? And they're like, no, no, I'm not money laundering. I'm offering a SaaS platform. But the whole thing is just really, really funny and worth 
like clicking on just to laugh at. Did you yeah, did it, you scroll this one? It's yes, awesome. yeah, yeah. I scrolled the thread and it's just like the sort of the gradual dawning of understanding amongst that particular Reddit group was like the legal advice UK uh, as they gradually realised this guy is just running a money laundering platform uh, and then his realisation that he is running a money laundering platform <laughs> just sort of gradually unfurling at the same time. Yeah, and I love it. It's um, like, but I don't know who's sending me these transactions. How can I be laundering the money? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's because you don't know who's sending the... You know, <laughs> so the whole thing is really funny. Uh, I actually yeah. screen cap two quotes from the, the person like, I am not money laundering is one screen cap. And then the other screen cap is like, I'm running a SaaS platform for Monero transactions. It's like- <laughs> Where I don't know who they're sending, yeah, they're sending yeah, these, where they're going. Yeah. <laughs> these two statements are not um, uh, are not compatible. But yeah. uh, And then, and then the, the, he kind of pleads valiantly that, but I pay my taxes. So yeah. how can I be doing a crime? It's like- mm, That's what money laundering crime. enables you to do, right? Is to take <laughs> ill-gotten gains and actually turn them into taxable legit income. But anyway, oh anyway. Adam, that's it for this week's news. Uh, I- uh, I thank you very much for joining me again this week. You have had a listen to my interview with Andrew Boyd from CIA, uh, which is going out tomorrow. You seem to have positive things to say to me about it. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed it. And obviously it's, you know, it's great for us to have people like, you know, Rob Joyce, Andrew Boyd, you know, kind of come in and talk to us. You know, when we've spent so many years covering this stuff from the outside, it's also really nice to then, you know, hear what it's like on the other side and, and hear, you know, some of the stories, some of the lingo, some of the, you know, the bits that you know, we've had to infer, I suppose, from public sources. So it's just great to have, you know, people like that show up and, and give their expertise and their sides of, uh, of these really important stories. Yeah, well, that one's out tomorrow. But Adam, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. That was CyberCX's Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ryan Callumba, the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. And over the last few years, Ryan has helped to build up uh, Proofpoint's data loss prevention business. And today, these days, the company makes something like $200 million a year out of DLP tech. So it's something that they, they know a bit about. And in this conversation, we talked to Ryan about how you can detect insider threats without having to do those awful, awful data classification projects that really nobody enjoys. So here's Ryan explaining why detecting this sort of stuff isn't rocket surgery. Enjoy. If you have people who have just shown up, if you have people that are leaving for a competitor, they all tend to steal data in the same ways. They all tend to exfiltrate data in the same ways on the way. They manipulate it in the same ways. And when you confront them, they react in the same ways. And it's <laughs> unbelievable the degree of consistency in incidents like these. I mean, I'm guessing most of the time it's just going to be zip file Dropbox, right? Yes. Uh, every possible variation on that theme. But interestingly, you know, we do see users especially the ones that have not got the classic lever profile, uh, not really even bother to hide any tracks. Just as effectively assume that nobody is watching and that whatever they do will be completely fine. And so they're doing the fastest possible method of exfiltrating a huge amount of information. It almost looks like what the ransomware actors are doing these days, or maybe data extortion actors if you prefer, where they're taking everything that's not nailed down. So it's not really a thoughtful process of data accumulation based on criteria. It's let me just grab a whole ton of stuff, zip it up in an archive, and ship it off to cloud storage. I recently, I think it was uh, last year sometime, I did an interview with a company that does this sort of stuff as well. They'd, they'd technically be one of your competitors, I believe. And it was interesting what the guy said, right? Which is, and you kind of alluded to it, which is 
when people don't know the store's being watched, they just go wild, right? And just will take anything that's not nailed down. And, you know, they seem to say that the, you know, the education part of these tools in that, you know, the occasional pop-up saying, are you sure you want to be moving files to your personal Dropbox? Uh, you know, that sort of stuff tends to modify behavior somewhat. I, I think that's broadly true. And it's true for entire classes of users. But what has been really interesting to me, when we got into data loss prevention, we had a thesis that, well, this is going to merge with insider risk controls, because why would you need two solutions to do that? Uh, and at the time, uh, as you mentioned, we acquired a couple of company called Observit that had hundreds of insider threat scenarios and detections built there. I was expecting and there I'm to guessing, be hundreds more. And I'm more. guessing only five of them fire, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 it's more like 15. But yes, it's an incredibly yeah. low number. Uh, and what I was getting flashbacks to was threats 10 years ago, right? When we didn't share much uh, before even the attack chain was formalized, right? People hid the incidents that they had. The community didn't learn from the same stuff that attackers were doing successfully over and over and over and over again, with the you know limited exception of that is a terrible vulnerability and now there's a patch Tuesday and, and now we have yeah, to learn yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess what you're saying now is that uh, is that uh, you know it's a little bit like that with uh, data loss incidents because and I, I can kind of see why right because sometimes you're going to get the FBI involved, your lawyers are always going to be involved. You know, there's going to be litigation. It's just something people aren't talking about. Exactly. And in those cases, again, the pattern is still going to be the same. Uh, and obviously, you'll have a slightly different set of stakeholders in, in maybe sharing some of the details that are frankly not all that useful to detecting that type of activity. Right? They might be really interesting to a court case, but really from the perspective of the community that's looking to benefit from how does this data loss occur and what do I look for in my own environment in order to stop it? We're really not sharing very much, and I frank frankly think we could be sharing a whole lot more. Now, when it comes to these sort of 15 ways that people tends to, tend to exfiltrate data as insiders, I mean, does this kind of indicate that a lot of what we're rolling out in terms of DLP is actually a bit overkill? You know, like, like, like surely we can put in place, you know, is it possible to put in place monitoring and controls that'll catch those 15 sort of templated ways without even using a dedicated DLP solution? I'm guessing, I'm guessing you could, but it would probably be too fiddly and you're just better off using the tool. I actually think you probably could do that. I'm not aware of anyone trying to do it specifically that way because... You know, we would have both remembered the UEBA space, right? User and Entity Behavior Analytics, for those who don't love Gartner acronyms. Uh, hmm. But they were trying to do it based on log data. And log data and human actions are only indirectly correlated to one another. So if you were to build something that took, say, endpoint email and cloud data and looked for a limited set of user interactions or excuse me, user actions, and did not do any data classification whatsoever, you could probably stop 12 to 15 pretty accurately. When you think about the basic coverage that pretty much everyone should have, uh, you're absolutely right that some feedback loop to the user is critical, but something of a surprise for us, it is the endpoint that matters more than almost everything else. Yeah. Uh, the other way that I think a lot of organizations on the on the vendor side tried to solve this was, well, we're cloud only, right? So we're going to build a lot of detections that really are fed by Graph API or those sorts of things. 
you're just going to miss so much about how data gets manipulated, not even put in archives, like files that get renamed and other really trivial stuff like that that users very commonly do to try and avoid detection. A huge amount of that is gettable on the endpoint and is very, very hard to do anywhere else. Now, look, when you're, when you're trying to stop data loss and you're on the endpoint, I'd imagine the two things you're going to, well, three things you really want to pay attention to. You're going to want to pay attention to what's happening with the email client. You're going to pay attention to what's happening in the file system. You know, rename files, archivers, new things popping up, that sort of thing. Um, and the third thing is, is going to be the browser. You know, you really want to see what's happening in the browser. And that's going to necessitate a plugin, right? Because browsers these days are really good at kind of keeping mal you know keeping software generally you know malware or legitimate software keeping stuff kind of out of the browser unless it's been specifically authorized and sort of integrated into the browser so you know how do you handle that from a vendor perspective i'm guessing you just roll as a plugin or yeah i i think you're spot on uh, sadly we are past the days of artisanal handcrafted ftp uh xfil as a as a thing uh but yeah the the browser is a something you can shim into in a variety of different ways uh, one of the biggest browser uh, things that is, is tricky is telling apart personal OneDrive from corporate OneDrive or personal Google Drive from, from corporate Google Drive. Uh, you, you can do some yeah, things. Yeah, because I was wondering, like, you know, if, you, if you're yeah. an EDR vendor and you're consuming logs generated by the browser, you know, you might see the domain. You know, you'll see the certificate and whatever, but you're not going to see which user they were logged in as, right? Well, exactly, exactly. And that's the part you have to figure out in order to handle it appropriately. What we do when we see the personal account is we redirect to isolation, right? So then it's our browser, right? It's Chromium running in the cloud, and we can run, you know, obviously DLP on the upload and, and malware protection on the download. There are a variety of different ways to do that architecturally, and I think the enterprise browser is back. Uh, those of us who remember Bromium have uh, a little bit of a PTSD uh, sense going on right now. But yes, uh, it is really, really, really useful to get stuff before it hits the wire because, you know, TLS 1.3, getting stuff off the wire is super expensive. And again, you're talking about 15 data loss scenarios. If you're in all of those places, exactly as you laid out, you're going to get them the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, unless you're up against the 0.1% sophisticated data loss adversary, which basically nobody is at this point. Well, it's interesting what you said about these uh, browsers. We've signed one of them as a sponsor, actually, Island, which does a, um, you know, like an enterprise browser. This does seem to be a new thing simply because browsers have done such a good job of locking software out of them. <laughs> yes. You know, the idea that you need this fully <laughs> instrumented uh, enterprise browser for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's actually as convincing as it's ever been. And one of their primary sales cases is this, um, you know, this DLP stuff. So it seems like, you know, getting in the browser and being there is kind of, that's agreed on, no matter what your approach to the broader problem is, it's sort of agreed upon that you need to be in the browser, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Microsoft at this point is relying on browser plugins for everything except Edge. Uh, it's, it's an architecture that makes sense. Uh, if, uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you're thinking about something that's more comprehensive, to your point, you can't miss what's happening in the file system. So a lot of organizations trying to solve this problem without a dedicated tool set are trying to merge stuff that they get from the EDR with stuff that they might get on the browser side, maybe augmented with stuff they get on the network side, when at the end of the day, it's a pattern of user activity. That's a really, really hard way to reconstruct it. Uh, and we found out that, you know, frankly, that's unnecessary to actually catch data loss in, in most scenarios, which if we shared more as an industry about how data loss was occurring, we probably wouldn't have gotten to this point where we're, we're trying to 
jury rig and get into our classic, hey, integrate this plus this plus this and do it in a sim and do it with ServiceNow on Workflow. I'm already having flashbacks. You kind of alluded to this earlier, which is that like, you know, DLP stuff, like, like where does it live? You know what I mean? Like it, is, it used to be considered, you know, sort of like a management thing. Increasingly, it's just looking more like a feature of, of endpoint security uh, these days. I mean, what do, you, what do you think of that? I mean, you're not an endpoint security vendor, so you probably hate it. But, um, <laughs> you know, it just more and more looks like something that should be run by the same team that runs like EDR. I think that's the center of gravity for sure. Uh, but when you when it comes to what actually makes DLP work at enterprise scale, you got to do those 15 use cases. Email cloud endpoint is basically the minimum and whatever you do on the browser is a bonus, usually of course on the enforcement side. And then the other thing that really matters and we always underrate this, the stuff has to work together. You have to have workflow that goes across that. It all has to end up in the same place. If you write a classifier uh, or you build a dictionary or you do some fancy ML stuff, you can't do that three different times to look for three different data types in three different places. So it is that kind of nuts and bolts stuff that starts to matter, even though to your point, the endpoint will tell you more than any other source of telemetry when it comes to data loss. So I guess what you're saying is you know, it's not the world's most difficult problem to wrap your arms around if it's something that you can prioritize, right? Like if you decide, I want to take care of data loss scenarios, I want to get alerts when someone is trying to exfiltrate data, some trusted insider is trying to exfiltrate data. I mean, I think contemporary DLP is actually pretty good at that. So, um, but I guess what you're saying is, yes, it is, it is very, very simple. There's 15 scenarios. They're very, very common. There might be a long tail of exotic stuff that you're rarely going to bump into. And even if someone's using them, they probably tried one of the common 15 first. Yeah, and, and that's precisely it. And then if you do that with a modern architecture where the corpus of events is all in the cloud, you're not doing kernel mode, terrible blue screen of death agents, which you know unfortunately a lot of DLP still is and got a very, very poor reputation for that reason, you know, you can roll this out really quick. You can roll it out to hundreds of thousands of users. We have over a weekend. Uh, and at the end of the day, the amazing thing about it is you can also save yourself from one of the most nightmarish projects in all of InfoSec, which is the data classification project. Uh, that is a, a never-ending tar pit for most organizations. And yeah, you should do the basics there. But if you're looking for the patterns of user activity, you can be imperfect when it comes to finding sensitive information. You're never going to be you know, the DOD with 19 classifications levels that are, that are all rigid, rigidly enforced across every possible platform, but you don't need to be. And that is another yeah. thing that people are extremely hung up on. And if we did more sharing, we'd realize that the, cl the classification project is not the precursor to stopping people looting the shop on their way out the door. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, you've been here previously making that point, which is that's the new way to do DLP is to look for people dragging zip files into personal Dropbox accounts, right? And exactly. it um, gets you, it's easier to do and it uh, it gets you a lot further. All right, Ryan Calumber, a pleasure to chat to you always, my friend. Uh, great to talk to you. We'll chat again soon. Thanks, Pat. Really appreciate the time. That was Ryan Calumber from Proofpoint there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Proofpoint for sponsoring this week's show and indeed for sponsoring a bunch of the work we do here at Risky Biz HQ. 
And that is it for today's podcast. I'll be back tomorrow with my interview with uh, Andrew Boyd from the CCI at CIA uh, and also with an episode of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren uh, in the Risky Biz News RSS feed. Uh, But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.